Now what we're going to do is go to the Word of God, and why don't you pray with me as we go before the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, uh, your grace, mercy, and thank you how we can laugh one moment, uh, but yet pause, and, and uh, not in a way that is uh, unbecoming of you, but yet um, you're gracious and we can come to your throne. I ask for grace. As I teach, I pray for grace for everyone that is listening, that you would uh, show yourself strong. Give me clarity of thought for these people. Amen. Amen. Look with me to Isaiah chapter 36, and we find ourselves in part four of our series in the book of Isaiah, and really not the entire book for those of you that don't know, just chapters 36 to 39 in this series entitled The Trustworthiness of God. So I've been looking forward to coming back to this passage. It's a real blessing for me to teach through it, meditate on it, learn from it as we work our way through it. And we're going to look at a pretty uh, substantial section here, which is Isaiah 36, verse 11. And we're going to find our way all the way into verse 13 of chapter 37. Now, it's a longer passage, but I feel like it would be helpful if I read it um, just to understand a flow of thought. And why don't you look with me to verse 11 of chapter 36. Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rapshikah, speak now to your servants in Aramaic, For we understand it, and do not speak to us in Judean in the hearing of the people who were on the wall. But Rapshikah said, Has my master sent me only to your master and to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their urine with you? Then Rapshikah stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not let Hezekiah, thus says the king of Assyria, do not, I'm sorry, do not listen to Hezekiah, For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me in each of his own vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpah? Where are the gods of Seravim? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand, that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and and Joah the son of Asaph, 
the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. And when Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and, and entered into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and he will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting at Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. When he heard them say, when he heard them say concerning um, Turkiah, king of Cush, he has come out to fight against you. And when he sent the messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, have you heard what the king of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely? So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my fathers have destroyed deliver them, even Gozen and Haran and Resev and the sons of Eden, who were at Telsar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Seravathim, and of Hena and Ival? Wow. That's an interesting passage, isn't it? There is a lot of uh, words that are being exchanged. And ultimately, what is in question here? It's a matter of trust. You know, several weeks ago, I asked why at times uh, we question whether or not theology and historical narratives are relevant for life. And I would propose to you, and I state again, that yes, uh, a pagan's king's arrogance, here is a, a sinful nation's inconsistency and divine intervention in a situation that seems seemingly impossible is relevant for life. As I stated before, divine intervention um, is the anchor of life. It's those moments in life when the Lord provides what you or no other power can do. Uh, They are those but God moments. And those but God moments um, that should compel a person to look and say, it could only have occurred at the hand of the Lord. I mean, one objective of, of this series is to cause just that. That is, that it will compel you to say, as you look at life and say, it can only happen by the hand of the Lord. And and you might notice, even in my wording, we can look back and say, well, that could have only happened 
And that's what they're saying. And that's what they will say. This could have only have happened by the hand of the Lord. But then for your life, as you look at life and the circumstances of life, and sometimes you will face circumstances that are absolutely beyond you, and you can say, this can only happen by the hand of the Lord. It's unfortunate that we live in a society uh, that doesn't support what we believe. And, and I should perhaps even say unfortunate. Yes, it is. Because since they don't support what we believe, that means that they're on the other side of God's favor. And to be on the other side of God's favor means that they're destined for a life without God and eventually an eternity without God. I'm hoping that we will, as we continue to walk through these messages, um, it will solidify even with us, mature our faith in a God that is trustworthy. I mean, of course, if we don't trust in him, it's not as if we don't trust. You do trust, but it is something other than the Savior. I mean, society has created, what, many saviors, and society wants us to trust in them in some measure or another. But we shouldn't limit um, our blame on society because the flesh is another deceiver as well, is it not? Does not the flesh deceive us? The flesh wants us to rely on our own abilities, our talents, and our strength. Everyone in this room, everyone in this room, everyone in this room, make sure you hear that, battles with the flesh. Do you not? And you're battling with the flesh for control of your life decisions. There's something that's fighting against you that's saying, do not trust the Lord in these circumstances. And we must. The world has one objective. And what is that objective? It wants to prevent us from trusting in the Lord for our life and for sanctification. Sanctification, those moments when we must say at times, only through the Lord can this happen. And we have to remind ourselves that even in the lowest valleys of life, that here's this reality, God is a trustworthy God that is incapable of being otherwise. God is a trustworthy God that is incapable of being otherwise. He cannot help but be trustworthy because it is his character. And God is a trustworthy God because he is a God who initiates and keeps his promises. So we have to remind ourselves, place it in our spiritual archives, that God cannot help but be trustworthy. It is his very nature. It is his person. God initiates promises, but he also keeps them because many of us at some point in time, uh, we have initiated promises. To initiate uh, isn't the final story. To keep the promise is really when we prove ourselves to have character and have integrity and have the ability that we claim. And God does both. He initiates. I will do this, but then he completes it. And at times, even when our intentions are good, we may say, I will do this for you, but we don't always complete it, do we? You know, we've seen that this Assyrian field commander, Rapshakah, his assault on the Judeans' confidence in the leadership of Hezekiah and also in the ability of God. And really, in that assault, it becomes an example of this modern attack on our faith and our God. And as I said before, we may not be surrounded by an Assyrian army, but we are surrounded by worldviews, personalities, and also spiritual powers that are fighting against us so that we will not trust this trustworthy God. And those attacks often come against us subtly, 
And sometimes these attacks are even very brazen. But I would say that the subtle attacks are the ones that are actually the most dangerous. I mean, their brazen attacks are open, arrogance, and defiance. And we see that's exactly where that person stands. When a person says, say, for instance, I do not absolutely believe in the divinity of or in the deity of Jesus Christ. Brazen attack. He was simply a man. He was no more than a man. But the subtle attacks are, well, friend, um, let's consider the words of Jesus Christ. Is it possible that he uh, had the sense of divinity, but yet um, he was not claiming divinity in the way that you believe that he was? And perhaps these people may come at you subtly, and some are just absolutely brazen. And there are things that, that are subtle attacks. Say, for instance, although I may consider it a brazen one, uh, there are people in the church today that would say that, well, we don't believe that God is a God that knows all things. I was actually in uh, this trip to Alberta, and I, uh, Dale, who's my intern with Grace Advance, we went up together, and he was doing some reading for one of his classes, a theology class. And right now they're studying this issue of the immutability of God, which is a great doctrine. And with immutability, he was doing some reading on what is called open theism. We talked about that a little bit when I went through the series on providence. And in open theism, these are written by people who claim the Lord Jesus Christ. And even have positions in even evangelical societies. And they teach in seminaries in an open theism. Essentially saying, God in fact does not know the alpha from the omega. God is learning. God has limitations. And they would propose that somehow these limitations help us identify with God better. And I would say to myself, do you think that helps us identify with God better? It's, it's as if we need to make God more human so we can see him like we see our fellow man. No, we should see him as he is. Amen. He is high and lifted up, is he not? That's who he is. Why would I want to settle for, why would I want to worship a God who is like me? No. I have enough problems with that with myself. No, let's not do that. And so they purport that this is a positive connection for us to see God in this way. Of course it's not. Because when one has this sort of understanding of God, what is it going to do? It's going to direct me to rest, not in his sovereign care, but in some supplemental power to complete what is lacking in God to meet my needs. No, not at all. This is not the God that we serve. I believe that you would agree that we are being attacked. But what is the response? The world and the flesh will never support our mission in life. Never. So what are we to do? I think from this passage, I propose that we can learn, we can learn five responses to the attack on faith from this passage. There are five responses to the attack on faith from this passage so that we can be better equipped in our fight against the attempts to have us rest in something other than a trustworthy God. Five attacks that we want to consider. Let me briefly review with you where we've been already. Uh, we already considered the character of those who rest in a trustworthy God. We looked at the character of Hezekiah from chapter 36, 1 to 3. We'll see it, which we'll, 
we've already looked at. Also, we cross-reference 2 Kings 18, 1 to 6. He was a man that served God, trusted God, clung to the Lord. We knew that he had reformed for God. He was willing to take chances for the Lord, if you will. Unlike his father Ahaz, he was a reformer. We also have noted the confidence offered by a trustworthy God. And that can be seen in verse 7 of chapter 36. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. There's this idea, there's a trustworthy God that we must absolutely rely on. And we spent some time developing trust, not only in this passage, but trust in Isaiah and then trust even in the Bible. And then we come to this next section, the trials of those who rest in a trustworthy God. And we see that in chapter 36, 1 to 22. And what was this attack? This attack that is clear. Don't trust. Rapshika says, don't trust in a strategy that cannot help you. No, you have a false reliance in verses 4 and 5. Then he says, don't trust in an ally who can't aid you. We see that in verse 6, then in 8 and 9. And who is that ally? The Egyptians. The Egyptians cannot help you. They are just as bruised reed. And if you lean on even the staff of Egypt, it's going to prick you in your hand. It's worn out. It's unstable is what he's saying, which was in fact true. And that's why earlier the word to Ahaz was to do not trust in the Egyptians. The word to Hezekiah was do not trust in the Egyptians, trust in me. And then don't trust in a God who cannot maintain you. And what we mean by that is how is it that you have torn down all of his altars? He can't even help you or he can't even maintain your worship of him. But that was a twisted sort of bit of propaganda because actually the altars that were being torn down were the false altars and the altars that should not have been there and places where they may have been worshiping Yahweh, but it should not have happened there. So it's a bit of um, psychological warfare that's going on here. And then in verse 10, don't trust in a God who's abandoned you. Notice in verse 10, he says, He says, have I not come up with the Lord's approval against the land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up to this land and destroy it. Because he is in part taking from a prophecy that would say the Assyrians would be his hand against the people of God. But ultimately, the Assyrians would not overtake the holy city. So he takes only a part of what God is saying to say, look, God has abandoned you. Do you really believe if you claim that he's going to be on your side? He can't. He's even told me to come and fight against you. Again, the psychological warfare continues. And then, if you notice, we're going to set up those five responses by looking at verses 11 to 20. Don't trust in a God who cannot deliver you. And this is what we see in verses 11 through 20. Don't trust in a God who ultimately cannot deliver you. And Rapshikah, this Assyrian commander, his propaganda is sort of fourfold, if you will. We'll look at um, his propaganda in four categories. Number one is this. Verses 11 and 12, we'll call it the rhetoric of language. Notice verses 11 and 12. It says, Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rapshikah, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Why would he say that? 
because Aramaic would have been the language of diplomacy, the language of negotiations, and not everyone would have understood it. So he says, now, as you talk to us, as you negotiate with us, don't allow the people to hear what you're saying. Simply speak to us. And so what does he do? Instead, what does Rabshakeh do? But Rabshakeh says, has my master sent me only to your master, that is, to Hezekiah? Something that you'll notice is throughout this passage, um, whenever a king is used, it's only used of the Assyrian king. It's never, he never refers to Hezekiah as king. Even here, this is the closest we get to it. He says, master, why? Because he's saying, I don't recognize his kingship. I don't recognize that he's the king of Judah. He's insignificant. And not only is Hezekiah insignificant as your leader, but your God is insignificant because he's abandoned you. He can't deliver you. Why do you trust in him? And this is often the attack of the world, isn't it? Why do you trust that leader? Why do you trust that person who holds to his integrity? Why do you trust that that person who has these outdated principles and values? And why do you trust this God? Look, Christianity is on the downside. People are leaving in droves. Enlighten yourself. Open your mind. See other possibilities. And this is what the world does. So notice what he says. His words are pretty harsh. I've not just sent, been sent here to speak to you and to your master, but to everyone who's on the wall. And notice what he says, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their urine with you. You're going to only survive by taking in your own excrement, is what he's saying. And why does he say those are on the wall? Now think, if some of, they've defeated 46 cities on their way to Jerusalem, and many of the people that would have come from the valley, they would have gathered into the, what they believe to be the safe gates of Jerusalem. And perhaps some of those people hearing it may have thought, wait a minute, that's right, I've lost land. My land has been destroyed. It's been taken away from me. That's right. I'm not sure if I want to trust Hezekiah. Why hasn't Yahweh come through for us? Is that promise really true? And it's, it's the old attempt to do what? Divide and do what? Conquer. Divide and conquer. Let's pit Hezekiah against the people and the people against Hezekiah and the people against Yahweh. The psychological warfare that's taking place here. So this rhetoric of language, no, I'm going to speak to them in Judea so they can hear me. Why should you doom them because you have this faulty trust in Hezekiah and this faulty trust in Yahweh? Let them make their own decision. Essentially is what he's trying to bring about. And notice his response even, if you will. And we should add this to the, the rhetoric um, of language. Then Rapture stood and crowd with a loud voice. So in contrast... Let's have private negotiations, Rapshika, but instead he does what? He cries out with a loud voice, and he does it in what? In Judean. And said, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. And then there's something else to his rhetoric, and we'll call it the rhetoric of deception. And notice what happens here. In verses 14 to the first part of 16, each verse in and it comes out in the NASB, and the Hebrew language starts off with a negative. And notice what it is. Do not, nor let, do not. So he says in verse 14, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you to say that he is able to deliver you. In verse 15, nor let Hezekiah make you trust 
and the Lord. And then in verse 16, do not listen to Hezekiah. So rapid fire, he's saying, don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't let him deceive you. Don't let him misguide you. So he's attacking the leader. And and this is understandable. I mean, if you're going to divide a people, where do you attack? You attack the leader, do you not? And say, for instance, you see it in churches. Once a leader falls, often the people will do what? They will scatter. When confidence is lost in a leader, then people become disillusioned. And this is why there's an attack that's taking place in this segment. So remember, they've destroyed. This is true. There's truth to the statement, though. Hezekiah cannot deliver you. Only God can. Hezekiah has limited resources, but God's resources are unlimited. Hezekiah knew he didn't have the troops or the resources to fight them off. So what's happening here, it's setting up a showdown between Yahweh and the king of Assyria. And then notice another part of his rhetoric, the rhetoric of promise. Notice the second part of verse 16 and then in verse 17. So make your peace with me and come out to me and each of his own vine and eat each of his own vine and each of the fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away into a land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. And his words here, unlike the words of the world, And what does the world promise us? The world promises a better life, does it not? The world says the grass is greener where? On the other side. There's going to be ease from toil. There's going to be this sense of pleasure. And scripture is also clear about pleasure pleasure that is in sin. Because remember of Moses, it says that he was willing to be undergo the ridicule of his people rather than experience the passing pleasures of sin. See, that's the thing about it. Sin, the world, the flesh never tells us the consequences of our actions. It simply says, try this. The grass is greener over there. And at times, guess what? The grass may be greener, but guess what? It's not your grass. Do you understand that? Because some, no, it's, it's, it just may be, it's not your grass. See, some people say, well, the grass is never greener. You know, like, you know, uh, I won't go there, but <laughs> no, that's, no, that's true. It, life might be better over there. Yeah. That person might be more attractive. That's true. But guess what? It's not your grass. And therefore, it's not greener. And therefore, it's just kindling to be burned. That's what it is. See, that's what society says. Go, it's pleasurable. It's beneficial. It's helpful. But it doesn't say it's going to ruin your life. You're going to have guilt. You're going to have heartache. It doesn't report that. And so he says here, here's the rhetoric of promise. So remember, he's saying to the people on the wall, wait a minute. No one has survived us. Do you think you'll survive? Are you really going to follow Hezekiah and Yahweh? Remember, you've torn down Yahweh's own altars, and the people may have been confused about that. Because remember, for years, they were at these altars, and perhaps they're thinking, that's right, Hezekiah, this was a part of our life. That's right, Hezekiah, I've already lost some loved ones. That's right, Hezekiah, I'm starving right now. 
It reminds you of one sense of the people of, of Israel on the Exodus. And what did they foolishly decide? They said to themselves when God had delivered them, let's go back where? Where we had, wow, it was, we had good food there. And now we have this stuff. And this is what the world does. So this speech is not unlike some of the speeches we hear in the world or the speeches we hear from our own flesh just telling us it's better somewhere else. But it doesn't tell you the pain it's going to come across. And what is also interesting about this language, now notice it with me. Pay attention especially to verse 17. I will come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Does that sound familiar? Does any of this sound familiar? Even in the book of Isaiah, God promised eventually to bring his people from all the lands, and there will be a great land flowing with what? Milk and honey. So in one sense, what we have here is the king of Assyria is attempting to be a messiah. It is only for the king of kings, not the king of Assyria. It is only for Emmanuel, not for even Hezekiah to make that deliverance or that promise. Um, In Micah 4.4, Just with this sort of language, it says, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Zechariah 3.10, it says, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. He's saying a day is coming. This will take place. But no, it is not under Shennacherib. You will go there as exiles. When you come into the land that the Messiah will give you, you will come as free men. Amen? So don't buy it. This is rhetoric. But how many people do buy it all the time? And they say, wow, that land looks very promising. That person looks very promising. That opportunity looks very promising. And they go to the other side, and it's like the proverb says, it's like a a sheep that is going to slaughter. Notice the rhetoric of compromise, though. This is verses really 18 to 20, the rhetoric of compromise. And this is all building up to these responses, trust me. The rhetoric of compromise, verses 18 to 20. Then he says, beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying the Lord will deliver. Then he goes on to say, has any of the gods of the nations done it? And we've read through it before. And notice uh, how it's set up. Verse 18, the Lord will deliver, and at the end of this passage here, this set, verse 20, it says the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from your hand. But in the middle uh, is this idea of these false gods. So in one sense, it's almost like it's acting like an inclusio, the book ends. Here is God, the Lord is going to deliver, and then the question is whether or not he will deliver, and in the middle are all of these false gods who have not delivered. So he, he references them, and true. Hamath, actually a very powerful city in northern Syria that the the Syrian king, Shargon II, he conquered it in 720. Arpad, and this is about 75 miles north of Hamath, and the Syrians defeated it in 740, and then again in 720. That's true. Sarvaham, the location and the conquest is, is unknown to scholars at this point. Samaria, of course it was defeated, 722, 21. The capital of the northern kingdoms, it was defeated. True. That's right. But there's something else that's very interesting here that you should note. Yeah, 
the rhetoric of comparison, the gods, the gods, the gods, the gods, the Lord. And essentially what he's saying, your, your God, Yahweh, is no different than the gods of the land. But what's interesting is something, look with me, um, and what does it say in verse 19? It says, and when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? And notice he's associating the capital of the northern kingdom with what? The gods. Why is that? What we have here is really, it's an indict, another indictment against the northern kingdom. Because what he's saying here is essentially, I don't recognize that Yahweh was the God of the northern kingdom. Because there were people that were into Baal worship. And now that's what they were known for. And that was, that's just really curious when you think about that. Because had they, um, had they been worshiping God, it would have been easier for him to say, did Yahweh deliver Samaria? But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that Yahweh delivered Samaria. He says, essentially, the God that they were worshiping, Baal didn't deliver them. So why should Yahweh deliver you, North and Southern Kingdom? We recognize that we know that you've gone through the reform. We know that you're worshiping Yahweh, but he's no different than the other gods, is what he's saying. But then, next, let's move ahead. The response of those who rest in a trustworthy God. And this takes us from verse 21 all the way to 37, 20. There are five responses that we should note. Number one is, uh, when they hear things like this, they respond with appropriate remorse. They respond with appropriate remorse. And this is what you see. Notice verse 21 to verse 1. It says, but they were silent because the king's word is don't answer. And then once they heard the words, what did they do? They came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. And then now, and when Hezekiah, verse 1, heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth. So what is the response? Appropriate remorse. That is, when we hear God's name being defamed, when we hear his name being blasphemed, there should be some sense of remorse. And this is what they're showing by having their clothes torn and putting on sackcloth. It's saying that we're mourning because this is a horrible day for us. And in one sense, I think it represents a sense of repentance as well. What have we done to create this situation? And it was an outward expression of something that should have been internal. And we see it throughout Scripture. And I don't have time to give the examples, but you can easily find many examples of men or women or the nations at time mourning and saying, God, we repent and we come to you in sackcloth and ashes. So there should be a proper response. We should be a people, when we hear God's name maligned in society today, there should be some mourning. No, it doesn't require sackcloth and ashes for us, but in our hearts, we should mourn. Something should bother us. We should be troubled by it. And I think that sometimes we hear it so often we can become indifferent to it. But we should not. Notice the second response. They respond by seeking counsel. Notice verse 2. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. So they respond by seeking counsel. And you should note here that the elders of the priests are accompanying him now. So what this is implying is that 
Hezekiah has gone to the temple, and in the temple somehow he's seeking the Lord, and now he has some of the elders who would have been in the temple go with this delegation as well. So it it lets us know that this is a spiritual battle. It's not a military one. It's not going to be won by military strategy, but by trusting in the promises of God. And we would do well to learn from this, to realize that we're engaged in a spiritual battle, are we not? I mean, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us what? These principalities and powers are fighting against us every day. So we say, um, we look at society and where society is moving. Who's behind it? Principalities and powers. We see men and women that do wicked things throughout history, um, using their power to oppress and to annihilate and, and even being involved in genocide. Who's behind that? Principalities and powers. Who's behind? I think when one questions the deity of Christ, principalities and powers. Who's even behind? I believe when even within the church, someone is telling us that God is a God that doesn't know the Alpha and the Omega. What's behind that? Some principality and power. So that somehow our view of God is skewed. And this is the attack that is on us and on our God. It wants to fight against our values and it wants to do what? It wants to devalue God by redefining God and who he is. And if we can redefine God in the way that we still allow people to say God or say the Lord or say Christianity, but we redefine it based on our worldview, the battle is won. Why is it that you can go to certain seminaries now and you can sit in a classroom and from from beginning to end they question the words of God? Why is it that you can go to a place now and they would say, oh, that's foolishness. We absolutely do not believe in six days of creation. That's a fairy tale. What's behind that? You know, it's interesting, you always get these refreshing moments in society, uh, and not that I'm any fan of society, because it's no fan of me or of you. But when we were in Alberta, Canada, the background of the people there, uh, Mennonite background, so strong family, strong religion, the parts of it um, that the culture overwhelms the scripture there. But what was interesting, Um, they're talking about their kids and just kids everywhere. It was just a wonderful experience. And they said, you know, in their classrooms, they actually have a quiet time, Bible time in their classroom. And uh, they pray in their classrooms. And the professor, they're saying, uh, not professor, but the instructor in one of the classrooms that attends the church, a biology teacher, and he teaches what the textbook says. And he says, now, here is a creationist view of what is being communicated there. Now, I said, oh, my, L.A. Unified School District would never happen, would it? (laughs) Never happen. Not happen. And I said, how is that? Because Canada is pretty much liberal. They're past us in certain areas, absolutely, especially certain segments of it. He says, no, because uh, we don't tolerate it here. There's enough people in this community that says, no, This is what we want for our kids, and they allow us to have it. I thought, that's a refreshing moment. But once you leave La Crete, and you find yourself in Edmonton, you find yourself in Toronto, and you find yourself in Vancouver, do you think that's going to happen? Absolutely not. 
The world is fighting against what we believe. Notice verse 3. How do those who trust God respond? They respond by stating the need. They said to, to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection, for children have come to birth, and there was no strength to, to, to deliver. Now, this wording here helps you understand even what Rabshakeh was saying earlier. That's why he says, hey, come out, your own fig tree, your own vine tree. He's saying this is a reality. It is difficult for us right now. Now, there's a question when he says distress. Obviously, that's, it's communicating the situation that they're under, rebuke. The question is, in the language, is the rebuke coming from the Assyrians or is it coming from God? And I just say, flip the coin and just choose whichever side you want. Because it is from the Assyrians who are saying, look at you, your God is minuscule. And it is God that is saying, you're in this situation because you did not trust me. And then he says, it's also rejection. And I believe here... Hezekiah is feeling some sense. Look, Yahweh has set us aside. We're the next city to fall. 46 have gone before it. And where is God for us? But he's still seeking. Here's the need. He sought God through prayer. And really what he's doing, he's seeking the word through Isaiah. Here's the fourth response. They respond by seeking intervention. They respond by seeking intervention. Notice verse 4. He says, perhaps, and there is some ambiguity to his language here, perhaps, because he doesn't have this sense of great confidence because he knows that they have not done well. Perhaps the Lord God will hear the words of Rapshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and rebuke the words which the Lord God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer to the remnant that is left. Notice this language, the living God. That should re- remind you of something else. You remember uh, the boy David. And when um, the giant came, and what did the boy David say? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who reproaches the what? The living God. The living God. And it's also important that he says living God because he's going to contrast Yahweh with the gods of the land who are all what? All dead. Hear God. And what does Isaiah say elsewhere about these idols? They have ears, but they cannot what? Hear. They have eyes, but they cannot what? See. You are different, God. I know that. The Assyrians don't recognize that. Even with our brothers to the north, they don't even associate you with them. We fail. We've let you down. We've disappointed you. We've not kept your covenant. We should have been a light to all of these nations. And had we been a light to these nations, they would not have been serving these false gods. They would have been serving you, the true and living God. But it's not that way. Notice, if you will, go with me to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. And... Who has a time for me? They took the clock away. 46. All right. Excellent. Notice Isaiah 46, verses 5 and 7. Um, I'm sorry, 46. Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. 
And does notice verse 5. He says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that, he would, that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and waste silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a what? God. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it up upon the shoulder and carried it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver from his distress. And remember, Hezekiah said, this is the time of what? Distress. But our God will hear because he is a God that is in fact an, a God that cannot be compared. So Rapshakah, you say, well, wait a minute. The gods of the land, Yahweh, there is no comparison. And God has made his own declaration. To whom will you compare me? To these gods that a person goes out and they have silver and they hire someone, they fashion it and they bow down to it and they call out to it and it does not answer in their moment of distress. So he's saying, God, here is our moment of distress. Hear us. And why should you hear us? Should you hear us because we have been so faithful? Should you hear us because we have been so pure? Should you hear us because we've been fulfilling our purpose? No, you should hear us because you are kind and gracious God. Amen. And where would we be without that? I mean, where would we all be without that? Where would we be without the ability to call on a God in time of need and say, God, I have not been what I should be. Forgive me. Here is a moment of distress. So it's clear. But here is something I need to communicate to you. What you see here in Hezekiah and the people of God is really the blessing of moral and physical bankruptcy. It's a blessing. I mean, Hezekiah has come to the point, he has come to the end of himself, which is a place of blessing because when we realize that our cup, our cup is empty, then the Lord can fill it. See, moral and physical bankruptcy is a blessing. We tend to want to do just the opposite, particularly physically. Look at our strength. Look at our ability. Look at our background. Look at our education. Look at our experiences. And once we realize that we are bankrupt before the Lord in those moments in life, and sometimes God, in his great wisdom, brings us to a point in our lives where we're facing difficulty and heartache and pain, and we realize my cup is absolutely empty. And then God is, okay, good. That's a good place to be. But our tendency is to say, no, it's half full. It's more than that. It's three quarters. It's full. Question, uh, has God ever brought you to a place to remind you that your cup is not full? That your resources are incomplete? That your wisdom has limitations? And, and Paul said it differently, but he's communicated that same truth. And what did he say? For when I'm weak, then I am what? Then I'm strong. But we tend to fight for strength, do we not? We tend to say, I can do this. We tend to say, what I just need to do is pull myself up by the bootstraps. And God is saying, well, I'll take away your boots then. And the next, I'll take away your socks. And you'll be barefoot. And at times, the people of God literally were barefoot because God had taken away everything. 
but we tend not to learn our lessons the way that we should. We have to go back to school, don't we? Yeah. He's at a point where <laughs> this is a time of rebuke and distress. But that's a blessing if we understand our God better. I mean, history is full of this. Church history is full of men and women that God has to break before he can feel. And here's one such example. Here's the fifth response. They wait divine instruction. Go back to 37. They wait divine instruction. So, yes, there should be remorse. They seek counsel. They state the need. They seek intervention by God, the only one who can help. But then they have to wait divine instruction. Verses 5 to 7. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord. Uh, Those are beautiful words. Here is a word from God. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. I'm going to put a spirit in him. He's going to hear rumor. He's going to return to his land. And he's going to fall by the sword in his own land, is what he's communicating here. So first, you see this divine source. God speaks, thus says the Lord. And then there's this divine command. Do not be afraid. Now, if you were to go back to Isaiah 7 and 4, this is essentially the same thing that was communicated to Ahaz. Don't be afraid. But instead, Ahaz was. And he thought an alliance was going to help. And now the alliance alliance is not helping. It's just the opposite. He says, don't be afraid. And if you were to look through Scripture, you'll find that do not fear is the most repeated command in Scripture. I've said it before, and you'll probably hear me say it again whenever we come upon this command because it's something that simply needs to be a part of your spiritual uh, reservoir, if you will, so you can lean on and realize I'm not to be afraid. Why? Because if God is for us, then who can what? Be against us. It doesn't matter. Assyrians, bring it on. Babylonians, bring it on. And let's let's combine all of world history, Romans, Greeks, Persians, it doesn't matter. If God is for us, no one can be against us. No force can be against us. But the question is, are we on the right side of the battle? And here's the other thing about it. If God is against you, no one can help you. Make sure you're on the right side. So he says, don't fear, because fear is what? Fear is the opposite of trust. Fear, in one sense, is an indictment against God. Fear is saying, I do not trust that you have the ability, the concern, to care for me and to meet my needs in this situation. This is what fear is. That's why it says, don't fear, because when you fear, you're saying, you do not trust me, do you? And there are always moments when we have to trust someone, do we not? I mean, I've seen stories, and, and it was one that literally, I mean, it was um, a building, I think it was in New York, building is burning, a gentleman is beneath, and he actually asked the mother, throw your child. And you say to yourself, what do you do in this moment? I'm not going to trust this person, but yet this fire is coming upon me. If I may, I, I may lose my life, but I can't lose my child's life. And she actually trusted the man And she dropped the child at the window. And you see it, and he catches her like this. 
and everyone is clapping. He's a hero, and he, you know, he does the, the talk show circuit and this sort of thing. That's what happened. And this moment of trust. I mean, fear. You say, no, I can't. This child is precious to me. Do we trust the Lord in that way? Do we trust him enough to say, I'm not sure. I need to protect this person. I need to protect my resources. And often what we're essentially saying is, I need to protect this life that I want to live. God says, no, give that up. Trust me. I'll keep you in my everlasting arms. So fear not. Isaiah, just listen. Fear not, Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. Verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who says to you, fear not, for I am the one who helps you. Verse 14, fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 43.1, but now thus I have called you by name. You are mine. Notice the intimacy of it. You are mine. And if we are the Lord's, then the Lord is going to watch over what is his. Do you agree with that? Now, someone may say to themselves, wait a minute, then if you care for me and if you love me and if you're all powerful and if I am yours and I believe that, I believe the language of a Paul that says that I am Christ and I'm with Christ and I believe the language that tells me that I'm in heavenly places, but if, you're, if I'm yours, why do I still experience pain? Why does sometimes life hurt? Why do sometimes people that make promises to me don't keep those promises and hurt me? Why do I at times find myself not having the resources that I actually need? I'm not talking about the things that we want. Why is it that I experience those things? Why is it? Why, when I went to Alberta, Canada, and I'm there to try to help these people organize this church, and they say to me, Pastor Carl, will you meet with this family and talk with him? They faced a great tragedy recently, and I knew about it coming into it, that their 30-year-old son decided life was too much, and he took his life. Now, I mentioned that to you, not just to make it for illustration's sake. I want you to pray to, and they know I would do this. I want you to pray for the Dick family. Pray for them. And I sat with them for several hours, and we talked. And it was one point in time, it just says, what are you feeling right now? And it was silence for a long period of time. And I've learned over the years to not always talk too much. And when I'm here, I talk a lot. <laughs> but there are other times it's just be quiet. And I listen. And they cried, and I cried a little bit. And I told them how they could trust in a God who cares for them. And one may wonder in that moment, care? Then why did my son take his life? And at times, people like that are feeling some sense of guilt because they're wondering, why didn't I know? Why didn't I see it? How could I have intervened? How could I have stopped it? How could I have prevented it? Aren't I his? Doesn't he care for me? Then why am I feeling this? Is he just like the gods of the lands? Is Yahweh any different? And we know the answer to that, don't we? 
why God allows people to go through different sort of hurt, I don't always know. But I know that God is trustworthy. That I do know. I know that the Assyrians were a mighty army, uh, but God is mightier. Amen? I know that this narrative took place about 2,700 years ago, um, but I know that it's relevant for your life today because the same God that was trustworthy then is the same God that is trustworthy now. And whatever you face in life, the highs and the lows. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word you give us. We pray that it will help us to live this life more fully. In Christ's name, amen.